As always, it's lovely to be with you. It's always a joy being at King's Church Kingston. So, uh, before starting, so you're continuing your series on 1 John, but before starting that, let me just tell you one story from our Uskadar church from the last couple of months. Uh, so, in there should be a photo there. So, in November, so I think a couple of weeks, maybe the week after I a couple of weeks after I came to you in November, Honor came to our church. Now, Honor was uh, a Turkish guy. He came to our church. He put his faith in Jesus. Uh, we baptized him in early December, which was really fun. And then his wife, Alima, she's Kazakh, but married to him, got good Turkish, so uh, living, in, living in Istanbul. Uh, so when he got baptized, she came along to church as well. Uh, and she's... Uh, she, I asked her afterwards, hey, what do you make of it? You're a Muslim. What do you make of it that your husband's become a Christian? She said, you know what? I think it's really good. He's changed. He's changed. And anyway, she started coming along to our Sunday meetings, started coming along to our prayer meetings. Now, our prayer meetings uh, are just normal prayer meetings. She started coming along. Uh, and then mid-December, uh, it was one of our standard prayer meetings. She was there. The... Uh, and we were just singing some worship songs. Anyway, the worship time finished, uh, and she prayed and said, Lord Jesus, thank you that I've put my faith in you. Thank you that I've become a Christian this evening. Uh, And I said to her, what do you mean you've become a Christian this evening? She said, well, what happened was this. Uh, We were singing a worship song, and at the start of the worship song, I knew I wasn't a Christian. I knew I didn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And as that song was being sung, the Holy Spirit came upon me. God's presence touched my heart. And I believed. I believed he was the son of God, and I put my faith in him. And then we had the privilege of baptizing her last Sunday. So it's an exciting story. God's at work. So, and once again, it reminds you it's God who saves people. I mean, we were just doing a standard prayer meeting, and God kind of got hold of someone. So that's exciting. You're very much reminded. I'm very much reminded always of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it says, God didn't choose the wise. God didn't choose the clever. God didn't choose the eloquent. He chose the lowly and the weak and the, those who are not. So actually, when stuff does happen, people can't boast and say, it's because of my great gifting. It's because God's actually at work. Uh, and it's wonderful knowing that God is committed to rescuing people, committed to changing lives, committed to transforming people. Okay, so we're going to continue looking uh, at this series in uh, 1 John. Let me just tell you a bit of the background for this letter. I'm sure probably when the first sermon was done, there was a bit of sharing about who it was written to, why it was written, but that was a few weeks ago. So let me just tell stories, because I like telling stories. So, the Apostle John... Jesus' beloved disciple, a faithful disciple, a real father in the faith, probably wrote this circular letter to different uh, church communities around the Ephesus area, uh, which is Ephesus is based in Turkey near Izmir, uh, around 90 AD. Now, the church in Ephesus has actually been established some 35 years earlier. So what had happened was the Apostle Paul, it's a bit of tag team going on between the Apostles, the Apostle Paul had arrived in Ephesus about 54 AD, and he stayed there for about three years. And Ephesus at that time was a cosmopolitan city, it was a centre of worship of the god, goddess Diana, and that, the effect of worship of the goddess Diana affected every facet of city life. 
But anyway, in that city, there was a Jewish community, so Paul first of all went to the synagogue. And he spent three months going to the synagogue, explaining and, uh, that actually Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament about a Messiah, about a coming one who would rescue his people. And actually, that one was Jesus, and they'd missed him. Anyway, after three months, uh, some in the Jewish community got really cross with Paul and basically said, look, uh, opposed him. And Paul said, well, enough of this. And he went off and he started instead, he took those who had become a Christian with him and moved to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And it says for two years, every day, he taught and reasoned in the Hall of Tyrannus, explaining about the kingdom of God and explaining about the gospel. And you get this community, this church that emerges after Paul's been doing this for a while. And it was a remarkable time. Absolutely remarkable. So you read this in Acts 19. That after the two years, it says this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Moreover, there were remarkable miracles taking place. It was clear that God's power was at work to the extent that people wanted Paul to touch their aprons or their handkerchiefs so they could then touch them and get healed. It was so, obviously in that culture there was lots of syncretism, in other words, people maybe became Christians, but alongside their Christianity they also kind of kept hold of following some of their other magic arts or things they'd done before they'd become Christians. And so you've got people who'd become Christians, uh, but still were living this kind of duplicitous type of lifestyle. And it says one day, fear came across upon the church. And people repented of being involved, recognized it was wrong that they were following these magic arts as well as following Jesus, and they repented of it. And it says they brought all their magic books, put them in a pile, and burnt them. Now, the extent to which the gospel was having an effect was this. The amount of the value of that pile was 50,000 pieces of silver, which in today's money terms would be the equivalent of having a bonfire of about three million pounds worth of magic books that were set alight because people's lives had been so radically turned around uh, by the gospel that they were rejecting their old lifestyle. And obviously loads of people had rejected their old lifestyle because there were three million pounds worth of magic books that were going up in smoke because the gospel was at work. In fact, the gospel was having such an effect that the idol makers in the city were starting to get worried Because they said, look, our trade's being affected. Because this man is proclaiming about Jesus and loads of people are turning to him. And you get this remarkable instance in Acts uh, where this riot nearly takes place. Because because, uh, those who make the idols sort of start this riot. Because they're really angry with Paul. And the, the... the city clerk says this remarkable thing. And he says this, this person, Paul, has never blasphemed against your goddess. And it's a remarkable phrase, because Paul has obviously been claiming that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the righteous one, that Jesus is the saviour of the world. But somehow, in the midst of doing that and confronting the idols in that place, he managed to do it in such a way that he was honouring and respectful. And I think, actually, when we're in a place like Istanbul, there's a goal to go, I would love it if my Muslim brothers and sisters went, you know what, this person hasn't blasphemed our God. 
But they also know that I'm consistently proclaiming that Jesus is the saviour of the world and he's the hope for the world. And you just see how Paul managed to do this. Anyway, I digress. Uh, So we fast forward 45 years. Is it 35, 45? Uh, And problems have emerged in the church. It seems like there have been some members of the church, some believers, who have started teaching a different type of teaching. Uh, and they start believing different things about who Jesus is. So they start denying that Jesus is the Christ. They start denying that Jesus truly came in the flesh and was a human. Uh, they deny that he would appear. And they deny that his death was necessary in order to save people from their sins. And it seems like there was this sharp disagreement that took place, and these members who disagreed ended up all leaving the church. But even though they left the church, some of them were still wandering around the Christian communities from time to time, teaching in the church, trying to persuade people of these new beliefs that weren't orthodox, that were heresy, that were wrong. And what you've got is you've got these believers in Ephesus genuine believers, but who are getting confused and going, actually, is what I'm believing true? Maybe these people who are teaching this other thing, maybe they've got it right and I've got it wrong. And so John, as a father, as a loving father for these group of communities in Ephesus, writes this letter to persuade them about what the truth is and to help them know that they are Christians and help them to stay away from error and to encourage them and to give them assurance. And so that's what we get in this letter. John's letter, when you read Paul's letters, like a book like Romans, Paul writes like a lawyer. So he starts off and he makes a case, and he makes a logical argument from Romans 1 through to Romans 12. And it's, it's logical. John doesn't work the same way. I think John's got a bit more of a Middle Eastern way of kind of illustrating stuff. So what John does, there are certain themes, and they emerge in his letter. And then what happens is they emerge again. And it's a bit like walking up a spiral staircase, and you come across the same things again and again, but sometimes from a slightly different angle. So actually, the stuff I'm going to be preaching on today is probably stuff that someone preached on two weeks ago, four weeks ago, because actually John just does this circling around, and you come across the same things from a slightly different perspective. But I think that's quite good, because I think we need to hear again and again the kind of stuff that... Uh, John is writing to us, because we need to hear this as well, because we sometimes uh, feel the challenges of these believers did in 90 AD in Ephesus. I mean, to be honest, I don't really need to preach too much, because I think I could summarize this sermon in one sentence, but I'll probably be a bit longer than that. If you've got Bibles, can you turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24, and I'll read it. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So if you want a one-sentence summary, it's this, love one another. Love one another. It's a call to the church community, particularly saying, hey, you've got to love one another. You've got to care for one another. Just as Christ has loved you, you love one another. And in a sense, that's it. Now, just to be clear, our salvation isn't based on the fact we love one another. That's evidence of the fact God's been at work in us. So what's happened? If you read 1 John, it talks about the fact that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he's just, and he cleanses us from all our sins. Uh, It talks about we have someone who defends us, Jesus Christ, when we do sin, an advocate for us. So Jesus forgives us of our sin, and because of that, Jesus works in our heart and gives us new life and places his love in us, and because of that, we then love our brothers and sisters. So it's an outworking, but if there's no outworking, then it questions whether this has ever taken place. So the key question John is asking is, how do you know that you're in the faith? And he answers this in these verses. John starts by reminding the believers of a commandment that they already knew, that we should love one another. Now, this wasn't a new command. John, 60 years earlier, as one of Jesus' disciples, would have been walking with Jesus. That would have been in in the upper room with Jesus uh, on the day before Jesus died. And Jesus taught this. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. John 15. It wasn't a new command, but it was an old command that required being told again and again. And to drive this point home, John compares and contrasts two two attitudes. The attitude of Cain and the attitude of Jesus. So Cain's attitude was this. It was one of jealousy and hatred. The story of Cain and Abel comes in Genesis chapter 4 in the Bible. It comes after Adam and Eve have been thrown out of the Garden of Eden uh, because they've rejected God, so they've been thrown out. Uh, Then over time, Eve becomes pregnant and they have two children, Cain and Abel. And on growing up, Cain and Abel both want to present sacrifices to God. Cain's a farmer, so what he does, he collects some of his vegetables, presents them to God as an offering. 
Abel, on the other hand, uh, takes a firstborn from his flock, kills it, presents it to God, a blood offering. Now, what's interesting is God speaks to, it, it says in Genesis 4, God accepted Abel's offering, but rejected Cain's. God, when Abel gave an offering, he brought something that was costly. When Cain presented something, he presented something that didn't cost him anything. He just picked some vegetables and off he went and gave them. And actually, there's something in the Bible that says when sacrifices are made uh, for forgiveness of sin, actually, there's something about the sacrifice of an animal. And the, the blood of the animal cleanses sin. And that points, doesn't it, to later on... To, th- 4,000 years later, uh, 5,000 years later to Jesus' death on a cross where he died and shed his blood for sacrifice for us. But anyway, God rejects Cain's offering. But God does say to him in verse uh, 7, he says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So there's a, there's, it's in a sense God saying, I don't accept it, but actually I can, you can. You can be accepted. But Cain's response is this. He looks at his brother who does what is righteous and he's done what's wicked or what's unrighteous. And he decides instead to murder his brother. This is how Daniel Aiken describes it in his commentary on uh, 1 John. The righteous act of Abel provoked the jealousy of Cain which digressed into hatred and eventually murder. As John Stott says, jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. John writes that Cain murdered Abel because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The ungodly, the Bible teach, are provoked by righteousness. Cain murdered his brother Abel because the wicked person hates righteousness, the Bible would teach. Burdick adds, godlessness is disturbed by the condemning presence of righteousness in its midst. And it would remove the cause of its discomfort if it could. And that's what Cain did. He was discomforted by Abel's righteousness, so he destroyed his brother. Then what Paul, John, John does to apply this story, he says, actually, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. You're living righteously. Don't be surprised if they hate you and they despise you. Uh, my friend Fuat, he became a Christian in, well, he started joining our community in November. We baptized him in December, the same time we baptized Honor, who you saw the picture of on the screen. The next week... Uh, rather carelessly, someone posted a picture on social media. It came out that he'd become a Christian, and his, his friend saw it and wrote the, wrote the response, have you become a traitor? Then his friend was connected, was a friend of his boss, and was also a friend of his family. So uh, my friend Farad said, look, please, so this guy's been a Christian maybe a few, about a month, so please don't tell, uh, tell my boss, please don't let my family know, but this friend ignored that. Uh, within the end of that week, the guy had lost his job uh, and his family said, I don't want anything to do with you. You've shamed me. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Paul, John was writing to a shame on a culture and actually people, people despised. That, that still happens today. And actually in this culture still, righteousness can provoke a response of contempt. 
I just think in this day and age, you're a brave person even questioning abortion and putting it on the table because the response can be, uh, can, can be uh, one of, uh, how dare you even question that? I just think righteousness provokes. John then contrasts this ungodly response of the world and hatred and murder to those who are belonging to the church and the godly attitude of loving them. Now, John is clear. He really doesn't pull his punches when he's teaching. The evidence that a believer has entered eternal life, that has put their faith in Jesus, that God's transforming work has happened in them, is the fact he will, she will, be loving those in the Christian community. That's not saying uh, it's, it's used in the continuous present. That person will be loving those in the Christian community. If someone doesn't love the church family, it's evident they've never encountered true new life. The Bible would teach. This would teach. They've never encountered the true life that's found in Christ. John continues, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John seems to be drawing there on Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes where Jesus says this, You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is, ang- who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, I just want to be clear. Listen, in a church community, there will be moments of anger, potentially even hatred amongst brothers and sisters. There will be moments of pettiness. Uh, there will be moments of hurt and conflict. Okay, when Paul's, uh, when, not Paul, when John's writing this, the anyone in this tense, uh, the verb of hating is in the present active tense. So in almost, if, if anyone continually hates, if anyone continually hates, he in essence is a murderer. That's what he's getting at. So he's not saying, look, there can be emotional blowouts. But if your very nature is one where you're continually hating those in the Christian community, then once again, it would be evidence that at this point here, there's not been true life that's taken place. The evidence of faith, according to John in this passage, is someone who is loving his brothers and sisters in the church community. And then John now wants to emphasize this by turning away from Cain and pointing towards Jesus. And he points towards Jesus and his attitude and his loving and his laying down of his life. And this is what we read. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, the contrast between Cain and Jesus is stark, isn't it? Cain murdered Jesus gave up his life. As Jesus, said in John's gospel, uh, as Jesus said in John's gospel, he said this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So those who are coming to rob, destroy, and the good shepherd instead lays down his life to protect those who are his own. And that's what the gospel message is. God came. There was a... Uh, you were in a desperate situation, hopeless situation, and then a saviour came who laid down his life to rescue you, to lift you up out of shame, to destroy your guilt and give you peace with God. 
so you've got this thing where it says Jesus gave up his life and you know, ought to give you up your life for each other. Now that sounds like a massive big thing, and it is a massive th- big thing. But what's fascinating is then John does this. He doesn't just focus on that, uh, on, on the big things, but he then really drills it down to become very practical. He says this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, it may be that we, need to, we, we could volunteer a, a kidney to a member in the church community who needs one. But actually, lots of the more down-to-earth one is we see someone in our church community who's got a need. And we go, can we meet that? Now, that may be financial as in this scenario. It may be with time. It may be the fact there's someone in our church community who can't come to church very regularly because they're ill. Or maybe they've even got a social phobia or something. And you go, well, actually, a way of practically loving is by me going to them. It's by me sacrificing my time. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's not just this global thing of love your brothers, love your brothers and sisters. It hones down. If you see a brother, if you see a sister who's in this situation of need, whatever you've got in your hand... Do it to help them. And I think it's this fascinating picture here John draws where he talks about, actually, don't close up your heart. I mean, it's quite a scary image, I think. In a sense, closing up your heart. When you see something, God's placed a tenderness in it and then you try and close, you close your heart up to that. But God, we were created to be in a community where we love one another. Just as Christ loved us, we're to love one another. And... John's writing this, don't just say it with words. So we don't just say it on a Sunday and say, yeah, we want to love each other. Actually, that's about how we live our lives and how we do community together. I think when you read the story of the early church, I think one of the things that excites me most is it generally was a community where the idea of family went beyond just blood relatives. It was a community that cared for each other. You read this in Acts chapter 2. Not only was it an exciting community where miracles were happening, where people were coming to faith, uh, where... People were meeting each other, not just in church meetings, but outside of that. But you read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, what a a picture of a church that's recognizing someone as need. So someone goes and sells what they've got to provide the needs for someone in their church community. You see, in our Western culture... I think we will do something that if, let's say, a blood relative desperately is in a situation of need, people will often sacrifice greatly. But actually, in this picture, it's the church community who are often sacrificing in that way. Again, you look in Acts 4 and you read this about the church. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And it continues on. There was not a needy person amongst them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed as each had any need. I mean, it's a remarkable picture. And I just think, there is something there. I go, I don't think... I don't think it's meant to be a communist manifesto, so it's not meant to be a utopian dream. Actually, this happened in the book of Acts in chapter 4. This happened in the book of Acts at chapter 2, and you go, actually, imagine a community where we're so connected with caring, supporting, loving each other. 
I think it's utterly provoking and utterly challenging because it makes me go, what do I view as things that belong to me? But love one another. And the Apostle Paul is direct and to the point, and he says this, if you're a Christian, this will be evidenced by your love for fellow Christians. It will be a love that sacrifice, where sacrifice is evident in the small as well as in the big things. And John really wants to ask him this question, I think, or I don't know whether he wants to ask him this question, but it causes us to ask this question. Does my life show this? Is there evidence that I'm living for God? Is there evidence that I am loving my neighbor? And it's a helpful thing to think about that, or loving, sorry, loving the church family. I think it's interesting. How do you know that you're a Christian? I think often you hear the answer this. Uh, You know, I prayed and asked Jesus into my life when I was 16. I remember feeling the weight of guilt lifted off me. I remember feeling just this amazing moment. Do you know what? I'm not going to, I think that's a great thing. But interestingly, if you ask John, what's the evidence you're a Christian? He would say in 1 John chapter 1, he would say, you walk in the light, don't walk in darkness. Or he would say here, you love your, you love your fellow believers. That's the evidence. That's what he says, look to that. So John's written this letter to assure the believers of their faith and to strengthen them. However, as we know, this letter was written to believers who were questioning their faith and asking the question, actually, am I in the faith? There were false teachers going around teaching other things and these people going, my word, am I really a Christian? Is this really true? And the John, John the Apostle does write this to try and encourage and assure people of their faith. And the passage we're looking at, the reason it's one of the reasons it's in the Bible is because if we have a crisis of faith and we start going, my word, is it true? Am I really a Christian? We can look and be assured and comforted and encouraged. So we read this. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before, before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It's interesting. You've got these people where it seems like their hearts are condemning them in God's presence. They're going, you know what, I'm not, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether I'm a Christian. And then John writes this and says, by this we know that we're in the truth. By this we know we're in the truth. And... Uh, And what's this by this? Actually, is this by the love and obedience that we exhibit, we will know that we're of the truth, uh, John's writing. Our love and obedience will give genuine assurance of our faith when we look at them. And it may be our hearts are saying something very different, but then we can look and go, oh no, okay, God's worked in me, so I'm loving people. And that can be an encouragement, actually, when the storm's going on, saying, uh, are you in the truth? Actually, we can look and go, no, God's worked something in my heart that I'm loving my brother. What's fascinating about this passage, and I really like, is it it says this. uh, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. 
or there's another phrase, another translation says, we reassure our hearts in his presence. It's in the process of dialogue with God. It's in the process of coming into God's presence. And sometimes, when, when there's a crisis of faith, the easy thing to do is often to step away from God's presence and try and stay away from God. Actually, the process here is you come in with God and almost you do dialogue with God and pray. And, and you recognize your heart's condemning you. And you come to God and you come into his presence. And that's where assurance comes. I've read a few commentaries on this passage in the last few weeks, uh, or last few days. Uh, and it's interesting, the phrase that says this is how we reassure our hearts, it's the verb, I don't know Greek really, but it's the verb peithio, I think that's how you pronounce it probably, and it would be better translated persuading. This is how we persuade ourselves. That's how these verbs used 50 other two ti- 52 times in the New Testament apparently. So this is probably more accurate in terms of translation. But this... The love and obedience we exhibit. By this we shall know that we are in the truth and shall convince ourselves of it in his presence. Namely, by the fact that even if our hearts condemn us, so in other words, we we look our our hearts, uh, our consciences are making us feel like, look, I don't think I am a Christian. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. John's telling us that our hearts may deceive us in in much the same way as our feelings can deceive deceive us at times. God's given us our consciences, and they're a brilliant thing, and they're really helpful, but sometimes they can be off-center. We can't fully trust them. They can be... They're not a perfect guide, but there's profound comfort in this, that God is greater than our consciences... And he knows all things. And the wonderful thing is, this God who knows all things, who is greater than our consciences, is a God of love, a God of compassion. We read in 1 John chapter 4, this is how God demonstrates his love amongst us. He sent his son as a one and only atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, he spends time persuading people that if they confess their sins, they know that God cleanses them of all unrighteousness. So when our hearts condemn us, A, we can look to the fact and be, and be reminded of the fact, actually, because we're loving our fellow brothers and sisters, there's assurance. And actually, we know that God's gracious and good, and he's got a salvation plan and rescued us and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And then there's this other thing. If we're loving our brothers and sisters, it actually gives us great confidence as we come to God in prayer. Uh, John's writing. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, what's interesting about that is I don't think that means we can ask for anything we want in prayer in some ways and we get it. There's an interesting phrase there, isn't it? Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And if we keep his commands and do what pleases him, actually the kind of things we'll be praying for will be the kind of things that reflect God's desires and God's heart and God's passions. And he's very eager to answer them. So it's about the, God. We've got great confidence when we come in prayer if we're those who are living for God and following him because our hearts have been shaped and molded by him to ask for the kind of things that he wants to answer and wants to give. But also we've got a father who's very generous and very eager to answer our prayers. And isn't that great? Isn't it great? Oh, we've got people. Hooray. But it's great news that God, we can have confidence in prayer, isn't it? Okay, good. 
And then just drawing to a close. John returns once again to this theme of assurance. So one theme of assurance is the fact because we know we're loving our brothers and sisters. When our hearts condemn us, we look to that and we go, no, God's at work in me. Uh, And in God's presence, we're persuaded. But secondly, we're reminded that God's given us the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're reminded... uh, Uh, John, I think, probably would be thinking back to Jesus' teaching in John 14 to John 16 about the Holy Spirit, about the Holy Spirit's to come and dwell in us. He's come to lead us into truth. He's come to remind us of the things that Jesus uh, said. And he comes to dwell in us and live in us. And you have that wonderful phrase that uh, God abides in us and we abide in him. And then it says this, whoever keeps, uh, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he's given us. You see, the apostle Paul, when he writes of what the Holy Spirit does, he says this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry Abba Father the spirit himself testifies with our spirit so we are God's children so that's what the Holy Spirit does he testifies that uh, he testifies that we are God's children that we belong to him that he loves us that we have a father in heaven who's for us that's what the Holy Spirit does he reminds us that we belong to Christ He causes something to arise up in us that cries out, Dad, Abba, Father. He testifies in our hearts that we belong to him. So yes, we can look to the fact that God's been at work in us, uh, causing us to love different people uh, in the community and is growing that love. But actually, we also look to the fact the Holy Spirit whispers in our ear, we belong to God and God's our Father. So, salvation is about what God's done. He came into the world. He rescued us. He demonstrated love to us, laid down his life. But then, as it says in this passage, but we also need to lay down our lives for one another. And, we, and the evidence of God's saving work in us is loving others. Paul writes in Galatians, he says, all that matters circumcision and uncircumcision, that doesn't matter. All that matters is faith that's expressing itself through love. Let's be a community that does that. Okay, how are we going to respond? I think just a couple of things. Well, in fact, why don't we all stand up? I'll just pray and then we'll do. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that your word is living and active. We want to thank you. Lord, it feels like in a sense... John says things that are really hard for us to hear sometimes. It it feels quite blunt. Uh, God, but we want to have ears that hear your word and allow your word to shape us rather than uh, just blot it out. Lord, help us of ears to hear. Help us of hearts to respond. Lord, we want to be a community that's shaped by the grace of God. We ask that in Jesus' name. We ask that for your glory. Amen.